Welcome to Untapped Higher Education. I'm your host, Wes Hallam, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Kyle Campbell, a voice of the Education Marketing Newsletter, which shares the best of the higher education marketing community, including universities, companies, and emerging trends. I invited Kyle to speak on the podcast as it's his business to understand how students receive and perceive information from the market and could give us an insight into the mindset of students as they navigate through their higher education journey. As students are seen more and more as consumers or customers within the HE space, it'll be really interesting to see what Kyle's insights are about how students are analysed and targeted by all areas of the higher education industry. So, Kyle, thank you very much for joining us. I'm really excited to have you here. Yeah, great to be here. It's uh, I usually spend a lot of time on marketing podcasts, so it's quite nice to um, stay in the higher education space but have a different sort of angle. So thanks for getting me on. Oh, no, not at all. Um, I guess I, the first thing to do is, is to jump straight in with uh probably from a the marketing perspective is we're always trying to understand what our customer profile is what our student profile is like what the what are their behaviors like and what are their um you know preferences and things like that but i often ask this question uh, to academics as well because we hear a lot of terms uh well, a lot of use of the term like modern student and things like digital natives and this sort of terminology which is incredibly generalizing sure. um for a very diverse group of people but from from your perspective if i was to ask you that wonderfully general conversation uh, general question who is the modern student and how do they act how do they behave in your view sure i mean you know, picking up on your your point you made there, I, I don't think there is a modern student. Um, and, you know, we could go down like the diversity angle and things that, like that. But I think there is a more of a macro sort of narrative at play here. And it, it sort of stems from how um, we we have consumed culture over over time. And, you know, if you think like 15 20 years ago where a lot of culture was controlled by a few key gatekeepers you know those who look after newspapers magazines tv radio you know the the voices that you would hear every day or the voices that are put on platforms were voices that were chosen by a small select of people at certain publications and that just isn't the case today you know, I can I'm going to my pocket now and I get out my phone, I can go on YouTube and I can consume content from someone who is talking about a very niche subject like a certain video game or something like that. And, you know, if you think back to when you and I were kids, you know, I certainly couldn't consume content about video games in that way. I'd have to get a magazine or I'd have to wait for a show like once a week, Games Master to come on the TV or whatever it was. And that was the only time I had a chance to see people like myself. And there were millions of us, but you wouldn't know it. So that's very different today. So I think the key, the first key difference really in the sort of archetypal modern student, if you like, is they have a very strong sense of individuality. Um, you know, they know who they are. They can connect with others like themselves a lot easier than any other generation that's come before them. Um, they're also very creative because they have these kind of smart devices in their pockets and they're essentially like Swiss army knife creative tools. 
you know, it's incredible what you can achieve on an iPhone these days. You know, throw AI into the mix and you've got this huge sense of scale of what an individual um, can create and do. Look at networks like Roblox as well, massive video games, right? Look at social networks. Typically, 1% of people who use those are creators. On Roblox, around 50% of the users also create content as, as well as play it. And Roblox is bigger than TikTok. So a couple of things. Strong sense of individuality and very uh, creative people. So, yeah, we haven't faced a generation quite like this before, and they've got so many opportunities. Um, that can be a wonderful thing for them, but it's also quite challenging. They have a lot of difficulties with mental health, uh, very visible ones, um, because they have this overwhelmed opportunity and they're, they're hyper-stimulated, and there's all kinds of things we need to consider around that. But generally, yeah, very creative people. I think that's, that's really... That's a different perspective than, than than where we normally get the the individuality piece. I think is is really is really fascinating for universities to try to understand because mm. uh, we were talking a little bit before we um, before we started recording about you know universities are constantly on a quest for or it seems they're on a quest for more scale for for bigger student numbers, larger cohorts, particularly after the 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 fairly financially damaging covid years there's this huge push for more and more expansion um but if the student body coming in are, are inherently unlikely to engage with a sort of a cookie cutter environment it's probably going to be quite challenging to get them engaged um one of the one of the things that we hear constantly at the moment is is that students are not attending lectures and that they are they are not showing up and that was particularly something that sort of post COVID that was expected to be quite a big draw for people is to come in and have that social experience and, and, and talk to different people and see their friends and do all of those, those other things that were perceived as a social good. Mm. Um, but if you're, you know, if your analysis of them being very individual um, and kind of very individually minded is, is correct, that might explain why they don't want to come and sit in a, in a lecture theatre with 600 other people and all have exactly the same experience that everyone else has, has got. Because as you said, they've got the entire world of content at their fingertips and they, they can go and explore something that, that makes sense to them. They also um, are better at making friends in a digital environment and building connections in the digital environment. And, you know, if you're someone who wasn't necessarily around, well, well a young person when the internet became like accessible to a great many people, you, it's always going to be like an add on to your experience rather than something that is just part of it. And there's a fantastic report published recently by Morning Consult that looks at the the changing way that young people have made friends over time and you know when gen z were on the kind of younger younger scale they're coming and getting into the mid-20s now they're getting on um uh, they you know pass the time by inviting friends around to play online games but it, you know in the same sort sort of room or with the people they've met in real life you know playing online with them but you fast forward another 10 years after that and you have that same activity but people are playing online games with people friends they've made only in online spaces so again it's shifted on a little bit more and you know, young people are much more comfortable to make building relationships in those digital spaces than you know, a millennial um, ever ever was so it's it's it is a big shift and 
it's not always a visible one. So we just need to be uh, aware of that. It was, uh, I remember during the sort of during the, the lockdown and when we were just coming back out of it, I was talking to some uh, some psychology lecturers at a, <clears throat> at a university nearby me who I got on with mm. quite well. And they were really fascinated about how students were dealing with the return to, to campus, particularly in how they dressed. Um, because they'd gone through several years, uh, well, they'd gone through sort of two years of only really existing in an, in an online space. And normally people would create a, you know, in normal times, you kind of have your online persona and your offline persona. And that's generally the online persona is more polished. It's more selective about what the things that are that exist there. And it's a curated experience for somebody. Whereas you're offline, you're much more likely to, you know, have just been rained on or to have something have gone wrong with your with your outfit for that day because you don't get to to, to curate and cultivate that image. Yeah. But when people started to come back onto campus, it posed a really challenging uh, thing for these young people who understand how do I present myself? I've got very used to, as you said, making friends online can yeah. be a really quick thing to do. You know, you jump to a Discord server and you find, you know, a thousand people who are interested in this one episode of a show that you happen to love That's and it. you can talk for hours about it whereas we're sort of expecting them to have a the same level of excitement and enthusiasm for a teaching model that i don't think they've ever experienced yeah and yeah. you know oh your well, lectures are great lectures might have been great if you've experienced them once before and then had them taken away and then gone back to them but if you've never experienced them I, you know, there's, there's probably not, I mean, I can remember from my undergrad days, there were certainly some lectures that I didn't pay the most amount of attention in. Um, and that's, that, that's kind of to be expected is just now that students have the option of not paying attention, but being at home whilst they don't pay attention. I think it's, yeah. it's, it's just a lot more visible. Um, but it's, 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 it's a fascinating, it, it, I like that question because it always gets a slightly different response from everybody. Mm. And particularly from, from sort of academics, it, it hugely determines on what they teach and who they're teaching, um, you know, what level they teach and, and those kind of things. And it's it's fascinating to see the split between them. Um, one of the things that, that actually that we get, uh, well, that comes up quite a lot, as I was mentioned in the, in the intro, is, is students as consumers. And for maybe the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, there's been you know, the introduction of fees, particularly in the, in the UK, um, the, the introduction of fees for students and, and much higher fees have generally been met with quite a lot of resistance um, from both academics and from, and from students. Obviously, the students don't want to pay that much money, but also from, from academics of, of not wanting the students to become consumers of a course, you know, turning up paying their student loan and as a result getting a degree that kind of mindset and that model's quite probably quite destructive to sort of open learning and, and, and developing those kind of skills that you need um, but from kind of a marketing perspective what do you think that we can we can maybe reframe that or, or, or use that model of the student as a consumer what do you think that we could how can we better understand meeting the needs of a consumer in a higher education context? Yeah, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? I mean, on the one hand, it is quite destructive potentially to the nature of what is the value of education. And as soon as you put that really commercial, heavy commercial lens on it, 
it kind of does strip out some of the discovery and you know the, the developing of oneself bettering oneself element of it and it becomes more of a transaction so i, I recognize that but on the other hand it does force us to look at the model and look at the way we position courses and and, and talk about them and and things like that so i mean the the thing that comes to my mind is you know we've just spoken there about the online for instance and how young people consume content we can't forget that the number one educator in the world is youtube that is the number one way that most people learn okay they don't go there for higher ed right um but they definitely go there to learn how to who to, how to do things um and this this sort of youtubeification if i want to just make up a phrase on the spot is is driving a a different way that we need to look at how how content is 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 packaged so you know, before it used to be the case that we have a network of, univer of universities in the country to facilitate where people were geographically. So you've never got too far to go to go to a university. And you go to university, you go in a room, you hear from someone who's really knowledgeable on their subject. But now with digital and digital scale, you can potentially learn from the person who is the best in class in that subject. So it becomes a question of, I don't know, something like, Let's take it out of the higher education narrative just to soften it slightly. But, you know, you can either go to a local culinary school and learn from someone who's a fairly decent chef, or you can drop $20 a month to hear from Gordon Ramsay on Masterclass, right? And, and it's a very different dynamic. So it does force us to innovate how we deliver things digitally and at scale. Some universities are looking at how they can do that. Um, a narrative that's gaining a lot of traction over, I say, the last six months is this idea of try before you apply. Kind of play on words there, you know. So rather try before you buy, it's try before you apply. And I look at it, and once you pass the whole fluff of the idea, it actually makes a lot of sense. Because if you're asking someone to drop in the UK, it's pr pretty much just over £9,000 a year now for a domestic undergraduate. It's a lot more for international students. But if you're asking someone to invest that amount of money, it, it feels right that they should try the product first. And you don't always get access to that stuff at open days. So what I've seen with universities like um, you know, University of Leicester, um, Liverpool Hope University, a real broad range of universities now, they're taking the best elements of their courses and they're turning them to short courses, making their academics the stars, their faculty the stars, you know, the, these people you're going to come and be taught with, you know, these, um, these people that are going to sell that course uh, to you and, and be the core of that offer. And they're putting them on camera, they're doing these beautiful filming um, edits, they've got loads of different diagrams going on, it's really engaging content, and the sort of stuff that young people are used to consuming in those digital channels. So they're taking the core product, which is there, they've just repositioned it in a way that students are used to consuming that so they feel more trust more confidence and you know based on the you know the it's kind of early insights i've seen from these programs the students who take this route they do the try before you apply they're more likely to apply at the end of it so it's not just another piece of marketing activity this is stuff that can you know win you students but also show you which students are the best fit for you so yeah, I think it's challenging, um, but I think it pushes us to try new things like this. And, you know, right now, I think these try before you apply videos are going to be as popular as like, the course video has been um, over the last 10 years. So, yeah, I think it's the next next phase, really. And that's a really fascinating uh, approach to it. I mean, from a uh, from a, a qualitative kind of standpoint or a quality standpoint, I can immediately mm. see that that kind of try before you apply also helps with with vetting 
of students as well because we as as let's say the barriers to entry to university courses get get lower because universities are hungrier for students they're competing more for students they need um they need the students to be there for them to be financially you know viable is that we start to see more and more variants of what is considered okay or, or sufficient for a student to succeed on a course um i've seen some pretty bad examples at various points uh, across across my journeys of of you know you can clearly see this student probably shouldn't be on this course at this university that they don't have either the prior experience um they either don't have the prior experience and the university isn't great at providing the resources to to, to speed them along or to, to, to sort of remedy those gaps or it's just not the thing for them mm. and and they they you know they should not really be at this level of of, of study um, but they've kind of felt a little bit of pressure into doing it or the offer came in and it's, you know, we, I remember a few years ago, we had the, the unconditional offer, um, kind of saga that was going on where people were getting offers before they had the results. And there was, it was all, it's all a good very- time to go to uni for a young person, oh. <laughs> not oh. so much for university, mm, but it was, um, it's, yeah, it's, a, that's a really interesting approach of, of actually yeah treating them like a consumer you know every every single learning course or or of any product really that's any any sort of digitally minded there's a freemium model there's have a little have a little bit for free and then you know if you want to get the full version then 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 you know then you come and stump up your your subscription fee which is will probably cause some people to feel quite uncomfortable about that kind of mindset of, you know, you could view a university course for some people as a subscription. You go, you pay a three-year subscription and by the end of it, you get your, you get your, um, you get your qualifications. Now, that's probably not a very popular viewpoint with academics or within the university system as a whole. Um, but it's quite an interesting kind of mind, kind of mind game to play of how do we, if we went went really mercantile about the university experience, what sort of things could we could we do? Could we change? Could we view differently? Um, what do you think? Do you think that kind of actual process of 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 shifting into a into a mercantile mindset about it do you think that has some 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 benefits are there risks to that would you do you think that would is it just an interesting thought experiment or is it something that could have kind of quite wide-reaching implications um yeah i mean i i think it can go one of two ways really that there are two sides to it i, I mean negatively what might happen is that you, you commoditize education to an extent that when you land on the institution's website, it, it feels like a, do you know when you like land on a, a course and it's usually by like a YouTube entrepreneur or something and the heavy sales tactics kick in. Mm-hmm. Um, I have this image of landing on like a university website and there's like tons of logos on it with all the institutions are contributing to the course. There's a try before you apply call to action. I've got a pop-up that's hitting me between the eyes it, it, and an excessively I, muscly man somewhere saying that you know if i could this is I it. try, this, try this product yeah. and you know your your brain could be as big as mine um I, what we want to avoid is is that and i think if you want to push commercialization to the max that's where that web optimization journey can take you that real push tactic i mean i'm, I'm always signing up to university like websites to see what they're 
that you know, my nurture comes alike and all that sort of thing. And, you know, I signed up to one kind of niche focused school is a business focused online qualification, pretty good speakers and academics who are teaching on that. But within like five minutes, I'm getting an email saying like, oh, do you want to do an MBA? It's like, no, not really. Um, I'm, I'm here for a different reason. Just because I filled in to get this white paper doesn't mean I want to buy your, your product. And that's a different conversation. So that's the negative side of it. It just goes far too low, far to the sales angle. The more positive ones I've seen where this is fully realized, um, Morning Brew's got an interesting model. Um, so I'm a massive fan of Morning Brew. It's a, it's a business newsletter targeted at frustrated millennial middle managers right and it has that kind of quirky tone about it but they've built up this audience millions of subscribers over over years because they deliver great engaging content consistently um, that presents business topics in an accessible uh, manner and they've recently launched um, a series of business courses now to promote those courses they haven't done google ads they haven't run marketing campaigns they've just shared them with their subscribers they said, look, if you enjoy this newsletter and all our insights and what we can bring with you, why don't you do this qualification with us? And I'm always amazed that more universities don't go down that route. And if we're talking about digital scale and digital networks and connecting with people in that way, why don't more universities go, right, we have these incredible speakers here, these incredible academics, faculty members, let's take their, their ideas and those awesome courses and scale them to digital audiences build the audience first and then surely the audience is going to find them more trustworthy and be more likely to study with them in, in the long term. Now, education isn't something you run a campaign in October and then track applications in January. It's, it's a very different beast. It's a long thought process. So I think we should probably lean more into that long-term media model and, you know, use all our expertise to, to raise that up and, and connect with students at, at scale rather than the sales angle. So that's the positive side of it. That's a really, uh, I mean, I'm sure somebody somewhere far cleverer than I has thought of this already, but, um, you know, universities have a pretty robust existing customer base um, that there would, you know, the every now and again, my university, you know, sends me an email saying, oh, do you want to come back and do an MBA? Do you want to come and do an MBA? I uh, get the same the same offers for for, for MBAs. So, oh, do you want do you want to come and do a master's? Like I don't I don't really have <laughs> have the time or in case of MBAs the money to just go and you know take six twelve months out of my job to go and do to go and do a, a, a you know another qualification. But if they said okay, we're, we're going to, you know, refresh your skills, go and develop, you know, here's the series of mini lectures from, from the department that, that you were in, or here's, you know, oh yeah, do the, do this master's course, but do it, do it online. We've recorded all the content and it's, you know, much less, you know, a, a much lower fee. Mm. That, that makes sense to me. I'm already a customer. I already am, you know, I'm quite fond of the university rather than asking me for 700 alumni donations a week um instead of saying okay here's a here's a you know we've we've launched this online you know online digital you know professional development course they're already creating those resources and creating that content that seems like a i'm, I'm sure i'm sure it's much more complicated than i'm making it out to be but you're right it, if thinking about it as a as a as a almost like a business rather than just an education institution that's pushing education out to people who, you know, might have been out of out of you know the system for 
five, 10, 15, 20 years and are looking to learn something new. And so the, you know, the first place you, you'd probably go to for trust is you'd go back to the university that you went through. You're right. And if you look at it from pure mathematics, there's, there's more people in the market who are older than 21 years old and working than there are going into university, just that undergraduate qualification. There are a few universities trying to tap into what you're describing. Um, I haven't seen anyone do it well at scale, but you know, if you, you're right, if you have all this sort of insight and you have that customer base and you kind of know, depending on what your data is like, where they're going in their careers, you, you'll probably know what skills they need, or at least you could be that place they go back to to get those skills. Um, I mean, maybe students might even be willing to pay a small subscription fee to access your on-demand platform, your community-based platform, whatever that is. And, you know, at the moment with you know, alumni departments, it, the, the base communication you get is typically a, a newsletter that doesn't relate to you. It's quite far apart from what your needs are. So, you know, if you're looking for long-term investment and let's face it, as time goes on, you're going to have less of those big donors because as your population gets older and gets into their careers, they have paid their fees already. They didn't get their education for a low cost. So they're less likely to give you these big rewards, right? So how are you going to generate revenue? Yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting, actually. Yeah, the the I guess yeah, the leaving money in the will thing is is if you're in if you're a consumer, like I've when in my will I don't have you know Amazon left in my in in my will because I had such a good time using their services over the years. <laughs> like it, that's just not how that works. No, um, it's not. It's a very different relationship. So. I'm sure there are, there's still big donors out there, especially of like, you know, the Whartons and the Harvards of this world. But I think for traditional, not traditional, wrong word, but for your, your typical university who would get revenue from that sort of avenue, I, I just don't think it's going to be a bigger, play. it's just not, it won't be a bigger play as it goes forward because people have already paid the fee. And also the, I think that kind of donation model is a bit of a, it's a bit of a throwback to, when such a small percentage of people went to university and that you know it was it was a you know a, a little closed bubble of mm-hmm. what was it you know five or six percent of the population who'd been there and to preserve it they they would you know and i think the, the stratification between somebody who went and got a degree and somebody who didn't by the ends of their careers in terms of where they were in earnings would be significantly higher than what it is now um and you know they're, they're seeming to say i think the latest changes to the you know student loan rules are that it's now gone to 45 years before you before it gets wiped which means <laughs> it is it is just effectively a tax until you pay it off it is which, and if you've never finished paying off your student loan bill and for you know 45 years of your life it's been taken nine percent of your wages don't really think that um that that I'm going to be hugely enthusiastic about you know leaving them something in my will when they when obviously it's not the university's fault um but the sentiment is going to be the sentiment is going to be there um and you might not be earning that much different to somebody who didn't go to university so you probably don't aren't going to have you know we're not in a particularly bounteous time at the moment where everyone's got cash you know sloshing around all over the place it it doesn't really feel like there's a big there's a big difference at the moment between um you know a grad somebody coming out of university at 21 now what their prospects are like uh, you know their prospects don't feel hugely immediately different 
from somebody who didn't go and went and did a trade mm. or went and did some, uh, you know, went and did something else or, or worked doing something else. So that's an interesting one. I hadn't really thought that far ahead, but that's a really interesting point to bring up. The value proposition of a university is changing as well. Um, a big piece of it used to be going to university and meeting your network, creating your network. Um, and that's not the case anymore either, because we've already spoken about discord and communities online and you know, if you want to meet people like you, you can find those discrete digital channels to 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 connect with people and, and get those opportunities. So there is value to going to university, obviously, but the the idea and understanding of the alumni network and the benefits that unlocks just isn't as it was like 10 to 15 years ago. Um, the value has has gone down. I wouldn't say it's commoditized, but um, there's lots of different ways now in which you can get into those industries and learn about those industries from people who are already in them and are willing to uh, help you look at LinkedIn and what the whole um, site is is built on you you can go on there and you can learn from thought leaders in those areas and they give content away for for free right where was that 10 years ago it was there but it was quite in its uh, early form but now it's matured and that changes the way that we we connect with people absolutely and you know the um things are popping up like linkedin learning and and those other those other sort of development platforms where if you're looking to develop a, a set of you know job skills for something or you know you're picking up new responsibility or you're trying to move into a new industry sometimes that's the first place that you know that, that i would go i used to work in the sales team when i moved when i started to move over into the marketing team i suddenly realized i had some fairly considerable gaps in my knowledge and my first place to turn wasn't at that point to go towards a university because it never really featured in my mindset of oh I could probably go back and do a course and do something there it was I'm going to go jump on jump on YouTube jump jump onto some you know free training content things that are out there admittedly you know stuff like LinkedIn is not free but Luckily, I get you know things like that paid through my uh, through, through my business, but that would be my first port of call because I think universities are, are still kind of set in that they're still they're separate from that. I don't think first as you kind of said before, it's it's good that they're not kind of a consumer. They're not a consumer good. They're not a consumer company, but I think there's certainly things that they can they can learn from what the rest of the market is doing and and kind of adapt some of that um but actually that that leads us quite nicely on to to, to the next question that i have um is sort of we talked about we talked about this sort of model from a from quite a macro perspective at a university um a university level and you know postgrad courses and things like that mm. one of the things I, I always try to do with this with this podcast is look at things that we can do to help your normal instructor teaching on a course doing some things sometimes they love teaching sometimes they hate teaching we get a whole range of different people on there you know they but one of the things that I always try to do with this is to try and pick apart with whoever I'm talking to um, what we can learn from your expertise and so one of the things that I wanted to sort of explore with you was, do you think it can help an instructor, like an individual academic, to think about their students as that consumer and about how do we 
communicate with them how do we engage them how do we do things with them the it, for some context on that we we saw a lot of emergency digital teaching or remote teaching or whatever you want to call it during the pandemic years and now we've seen a little bit of a in some places people reverting back to this back to a model that kind of predated being forced to be online mm. i personally i don't i don't think that works particularly well because it's not addressing that the student body has changed um but sort of if we were to, to to take this idea of the student as a consumer what how do you think uh an instructor or an academic could actually use that mindset to help with engaging with their students yes i mean we've we've spoken about the different ways that young people consume content um we touched on youtube and and tiktok and short form and things like that and there are there are some universities that are, are looking at that that delivery model and you know one that things in my mind is called um, tomorrow university um and their lecturers are uh, it's a digital it's a digital online college um but essentially their lecturers uh, lectures are delivered in like 10 minute chunks um so you might have a topical area each area of that sub subtopic if you like is a, a 10 minute video of uh, an expert talking through those those things and they have online community spaces for students to connect with each other. And these are the more macro sort of changes. But I guess what I'm I'm sharing with people here is that it, it, it's already been done, right? It's, it's been proven to work. This, this school enrolls students and it's built around flexibility. Because um, we've, we've seen this, especially with like master's education, not so much undergraduate. I think this, this group is still comfortable with the idea of going to university for a three-year period. But certainly masters want to upgrade skills, knowledge, progress in their careers. This you know more open style of education is, is quite popular the other thing for an individual instructor to sort of take from this is um uh, getting their ideas out there and, and attracting students from their own expertise now i'm a i'm a content marketer by by trade and any sort of initiative i work on is always a, a mixture of um, expertise what you want to be known for what you know what you're good at hitting an audience needs what problem the audience has and how your expertise can solve it those two things are often done quite well um, with academics um the the third area that really brings it together is this idea of a remarkable point of view or a, or a tilt or a different angle and this is the thing that makes the content sort of stand out and lift itself so if you have this sort of unique uh, understanding of a topic the the thing that will set you apart is how you discuss that right so maybe you're an academic and maybe you've got this idea. You could publish a YouTube video on that, right? Or you could go down the LinkedIn route. There's lots of master's students who actually now use LinkedIn as a, a way to discover what course they're, they're going to study. I think 75% of PhD students use LinkedIn to in, like, investigate the supervisors and find out. And if you're publishing content in that space and you're doing it consistently, um, you have a much higher chance of connecting with your audience, your ideal student, than a marketing campaign in this one-off period ever would because you've committed to it. And, you know, this has worked for a lot of high-profile academics. There's an incredible one I listen to regularly on the podcast called, um, what's his name, Professor Scott Galloway. Huge, right? So he does a podcast, he teaches at NYU, but he's essentially built a media company around him himself. Now, this is an extreme example. This this guy is like up the, the higher end of the success metric. Um, but he's done this by, yes, being an expert in his area, 
but how he distributes that knowledge. And he does it by breaking down these complex ideas to an audience in a way that they understand them, that they find them entertaining, he's quirky, he's eccentric. That's the thing that gets him noticed. So there's two things, isn't there, right? So you've got the the sort of education piece and the delivery model, those bite-sized sort of lectures. That's more of a university decision, really. Um, but then you've got the media model as well, where an individual expert knows their audience well, delivers their stuff slightly differently, and as a result, becomes a media company um, and can connect with an audience at scale using these these digital channels. So, yeah, plus content marketing applied to an academic framework there, but so much potential because the thing that really gets content marketing off the ground is you know when you've got this unique thing to talk about that you're a deep subject area expert and it's hard to do it over time but if you commit with it you you really can uh, stand out amongst your competition i think also you know by inherent in their nature um academic instructors are in the very upper percentile of of, of knowledge about that thing yeah you know from a you know for for the Luddites among us who uh, who you know aren't aren't you know academic professors, it can be very difficult, say for for you or for me to to develop that knowledge uh, of I really know about this thing, and you know it could be that yes, I I could go and talk about stuff at a maybe a slightly higher level than most people on a particular topic but that's to to actually get to the point where i'm being unique and able to to capitalize on it and to and to make the most of it that's going to take me a lot of learning to do mm-hmm. and i think some academics have uh, are a little bit no maybe they downplay their actual expertise a little bit you know because you know we could go and talk to a corporate finance lecturer or a marketing lecturer or a cell biology lecturer it doesn't really matter who it is they know more than 99% of the global population about this thing. They also are probably far more interested than 99% of, of the population. If you know, if you're a professor of cell biology, you probably quite like cell biology. Um, if I was to Hopefully, go out on a yeah. limb, to, yeah, to go out on a limb and, and try and guess, it's, it's you probably would be quite interested in it. And so, you know, as you said, there of those three pieces, they already have the expertise. They already have the enthusiasm bit nailed down and i think sometimes it's yeah it's, it's enabling people to to understand that they can be they can be a bit of a brand mm. and that they can they they it's not necessarily you know going and 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 getting all the way up and being a media company necessarily although why not um <laughs> but it's it's kind of thinking of yourself as 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 being able to produce that content and being a being capable of acting like that of this is my expertise. This is my passion. I can share this and I can create enthusiasm for it yeah. by just being, by being myself and sharing myself with other people. Yeah. Um, I, I hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's exactly what it's, what it's about. And they do know like more about certain topics than 97%. So share that knowledge in a way that's relevant to the audience you're, you're trying to attract. The, the other thing that I think, will give a new lease of life this sort of model is it we've all seen the explosion on generative ai over the last like six six months and it, the, the issue we have here is that that commoditizes the content creation process and anyone can go out and create content but that means that the creation of new knowledge you know new insights new thinking is going to be even more important 
and only a select few people have the power to create new IP and, and new knowledge. And this is where the academic community comes in. So if you've got these ideas and these you know, kind of different ways of framing the world, you know, really now is the time to be kind of leaning into that digital scale you can get through these these networks and talking about it because no one else can use AI to create that new knowledge. Only only you can. Um, and that's a real differentiator and that's a powerful marketing thing for people like me, but it's, it's also very good for raising your own reputation and, and getting those, uh, and getting more people uh, aware of what you're, what you're doing. So yeah, you, you, you're actually at an advantage in, in this case against AIs because you have that deep subject area knowledge. And I, we're still, I think, going to be in the panic checking of any stuff that AI actually kicks out at the moment because, you know, we've all we've all played with it, we've all used it, and we've all been somewhat scared sometimes. Where when it pumps something out that you think I'm not a hundred percent sure that's that's right, um, <laughs> like mm, not sure. And so it's if anything, people who are uh, who already have the subject matter knowledge, they already know the direction that they want to tweak something into and can can hone it rather than having to then go and meticulously fact check everything that's that that's uh <laughs> that, that it's suddenly generated to make sure you're not giving somebody some bad advice <laughs> um but unfortunately we have actually now run out of time um i could quite happily sit here and talk to you all day um i think there's lots of things that we've covered here that's really interesting to get your perspective on um the the kind of the role of the university and the lecturer in this sort of marketing machine of of higher education although people may not want to view themselves as as that or they may not want to engage with that model it it's becoming more and more apparent that universities are going to have to get more more aggressive with uh, and, and probably smarter and more refined in how they position themselves and that's going to come down to the course level as well of of one instructor is going to you know one instructor at a year one uh business statistics course is going to have to outcompete all the other instructors uh at year one business statistics because it becomes much more accessible university may become less geographically limited um there's a whole there's a whole host of things that are coming there so having the taking the time to kind of put yourself into the student's students consumer mindset and looking at how do we actually meet their needs uh more effectively is, is a really it's a really fascinating line of conversation to go down um but i said we'll have to get you back on to to, to discuss some of this more so all that's uh left for me to say is is thank you to my guest carl campbell uh, as a reminder he's the voice of the education marketer newsletter Highly recommend that you do actually go and sign up to that. I read it. Uh, it comes out every two weeks. That's right, isn't it, Kyle? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, every two weeks. Really good insights into what's actually happening with with the world of higher education, and particularly about how companies and universities are approaching, um, uh, kind of attracting and targeting students. Um, but thanks very much for, for joining us today. And um, I, I've really enjoyed it. And we'll have to get you back on the next one. Great. I look forward to it. Thanks for making it to the end of this Untapped Higher Education episode. I really appreciate taking the time and I'd just like to give special thanks to my guest for sharing their insights and perspectives. If you liked the episode, please do feel free to subscribe to us or you can leave a 
like and a review as that helps us to share the show out to more people. If you've got any ideas for topics or ideas that we should be covering on the next episode, you can find all the links to the blog which is associated with the podcast in the show notes. I really hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Thanks and I'll see you in the next one.